Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Broken Laws podcast. And I'm, I'm oh, oh dear, I, I realize I've probably made a mistake because we're not actually meant to say ladies and gentlemen, we're meant to make it personal, aren't we? We're meant to say dear listener, dear listener. Um, Listen up, maggots. How about that? <laughs> we on straight side are here to deliver our knowledge to you of, of the of the roaring format. Now, welcome to Broken Laws podcast. Um, this is going to be known as the infected episode because both myself and Aaron are recording this whilst, frankly, um, we've contracted a, a virus, haven't we? Not not the same one, thankfully. But but yeah, we're a little bit under the weather, so please forgive any lapses in our concentration or diction or, shall we say, knowledge? I'm not sure that we can put lapses in knowledge down to both of us having contracted quite heavy colds. Uh- Although, then again, if it works, yes, let's do that. I certainly need all the excuses I can get, Aaron. We're going to talk about a few things today. But one of the things we're going to talk about is we we did a silly thing a couple of weeks ago, maybe three, four weeks ago. We started arguing with people on Twitter. And as is a well-known thing, Twitter is literally the best venue for a nuanced, meaningful, calm, and rational discussion of issues in a totally unemotional fashion. And because myself and Aaron agree on all things, we decided it would be best to argue about the nature of talent. And so we're, we're, we're going to finish this discussion um, in a podcast format. Now, Aaron, well, I. Are, are we happy, sort of like leaving this to the second half, while we discuss like some of the the new ventures ventures of? Uh... I am happy to leave this to the second half of the podcast, the discussion of talent. I should say that we were we were arguing about talent, or we were discussing talent with um, some of the broken oars listenership or audienceship or audience is probably the best way. My God, the infection really has struck right deep to the heart of the linguistic um, facility, hasn't it? We were arguing with people who listen to broken oars about what talent is and, and what it means in a cultural and social context and what it means in a sporting context. And because Loon and I do speak with one voice and are of one mind, which made us such so, so formidable in a boat together, we feel that we should maybe elucidate or go through some of our ideas about what talent is, what it isn't, and if it results in us falling out and never talking again, we should maybe leave it to the second half of the pod. Indeed. And so we are hugely grateful um, for those people who have, and that we, we are getting some very kind people who are helping to support the pod. But rather than simply just saying, give us some money, what we would like to do is actually offer in return some actual value to those who support the pod. Uh, So what we've done is we have created, under some rather amusingly silly monikers, um, three training programs that you might find a little bit harder to get your hands on than just your everyday training program. So we have created a um, a 500 meter sprint training program, and these are very much rowing machine focused rather than on the water focused because I think the programming aspect is less important on the water and the coaching aspect is more important. 
but we have created a 500 meter training program, which is very, very sprint orientated. We have created a 1000 meter training program, which is a little bit of both. And we have finally created our 5K training program, which is um, not unlike a 2K training program, if we're honest, but it is a little bit more emphasizing that kind of anaerobic threshold work rather than the sort of more speed work that you'd need to get good at the 2K. And if you would like to purchase one of these programs, um, we believe that they will assist you greatly. Um, we cannot guarantee that you will row as fast as Tom George in your 5K, or you will cover the standing 500 in one minute and 10 seconds, like Phil Clapp, but they will definitely make you faster if you follow them for the 13 weeks that they're prescribed for. And they can be found on our Buy Me A Coffee website under the Shop or Extras button. And you can download them all for the princely sum of £10. Now, Aaron, do, do you mind if I share my screen with you? The last time someone said that, there was a court case and, and arresting officers got involved. Will I be looking at anything that I don't want to as a consenting adult at this point? I, I, I think you should be okay, because this this is the other thing that we're about to put onto the website. And this is, I'm afraid it's rather crude. It is just an Excel workbook with many, many different things on it. But let me go here. Okay. Here we go. This is it. Power curve clean. Now, what we have here is a potentially very useful document for any raw or anybody who uses a rowing machine or arguably any endurance athlete to create this kind of uh this kind of graph, it tells you a lot of things. Now, what we're looking at here along the bottom is the minutes that you have endured. And along the, uh, along the graph up here, you are looking at the watts that you have expressed that in. So if I, if I just zoom in a little bit here, we can see this, this goes right up to 900 watts there. And along the bottom, we go right up to 60 minutes so this is essentially based on my data and what it's all about is at some point i did a seven second burst up here and was able to persuade myself to produce about 960 odd watts and the longer i go for as you can see the less watts i can produce and as i come down here this red line this follows the, the track of my anaerobic capacity. This is what I can produce purely on my anaerobic power output, which as you can see is very, very high, but very, very short lasting. And this nice yellow line along here, this follows the track of my aerobic capacity, which again is, uh, or, or inversely, shall we say, um, is much more long lasting, but does not produce as the same power output. Now, the fun thing about this is that you can pretty much create this curve with about four data points. So you need your initial data point there, a data point of four minutes, a data point around about 
40 minutes and maybe one along here. And that will allow you to more or less fit a curve along there. And then from that, the very, very useful thing, apart from having a certain insight into what sort of athlete you are, um, you'll be able to tell whether or not you are um, a more anaerobically or aerobically focused athlete and therefore how you should train. There are different ways to training if you're a more aerobically biased or anaerobically biased athlete. Um, but what this document allows you to do is say, if you know your, where are we here? Let's, let's just bring this one down. If you know your 10K time, around about 36 minutes, and you know, let's say your jumping around a little bit over here, your 5K time, that should give you a very, very clear idea of the watts that you can hold for 60 minutes or any time in between, because you can just have a look at how long you think your effort is gonna take, let's say half an hour, and read off on the graph here and realize that you can hold about, from the look of it, about 310 watts. And you can do that. And the more things that you, more points you put on the graph, the more accurately you can do that. And whilst it's not necessarily as um, massively easy as I, as I would like. So here we go, what's versus time, time workings. You do actually end up with quite uh, quite a few things that you need to enter in yourself, and it'd be nice if you didn't, but you do. Um, so you fill out everything here, and you fill out everything here, and you get, well, you get your anaerobic power graph, and you get your aerobic power graph there. Um, and everything can be brought together quite nicely in one graph that allows you to work out how fast you can go for how long. Now, or in fact, not just the graph, but the workbook itself is now available for anyone to purchase on our buy me a coffee function. And I would like to think that it would be very useful to anyone who is very serious about maximizing their performance on the rowing machine within the context of a, I, I suppose, within the context of a rowing club or on the water rowing or just within the context of working hard on the rowing machine itself. So if I could just summarize for the non-scientists among us, and I realize that everyone who listens to Broken Oars podcast is essentially a scientist and a sports scientist at that and knows exactly what you've just been saying. But let's presume that, you know, we have the odd humanities graduate in there, like, like what I is. Uh, basically, and I'm going to use technical terms here, you have produced a widget which is a word we should all use more often because it's great fun to say, widget. But you have produced a widget which allows you to input your data. And the more in the more data that you input, the more accurately you will be able to predict um, what you can do or hold for a given distance or a given time or a given or how long you can sustain a particular power output. Would that yes. be a fair summation? I think after a while in rowing, you start to have a mental map of what you can and can't achieve on the mm -hmm. rowing machine. 
However, A, first of all, it's not always accurate. Um, it fluctuates from year to year, from time to time, and from your different sort of training block to training block. And so what this document is, is a visualization to give you a much better idea. So if somebody comes along and says, right, our, you know, our test this week is going to be a 40 minute test. You actually then have some idea of how to pace that. You can say, right, I, you can come along here and you can say, right, 40 minutes is about there. And that, with my data, purely consequentially, allows me to look along here and say, right, that's 300 watts. Now, 300 watts may mean nothing, but helpfully, Aaron, I, I have done this. <laughs> Um, 300 watts is precisely about here, which comes along there, and it comes down to just a bit below. It's in the region of between 146 and 147. So, yeah, 302 watts, 145-ish. So That's you have what I should be going for for 45 minutes, for 40 minutes, rather. So you have created a widget, which if 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 our listeners download it, which will um, entail a small fee to download it, but then you start inputting all of your training data, it means that on any given day, you will be able to look at it. Let's say it's a 40 minute test or say your coach says you've got a 30 by 20 coming up. You'll be able to look at, at um, what you've inputted and rather than go on, well, I usually do like a 148, but I've had a cold, so I don't know how. You will be able to tell roughly what split you'll be able to hold for that. So it, it, it's something that allows you to maximize your training physiologically, but it's also something that will allow you to overcome any psychological or cultural barriers that you might have to how you perform in a given test or given set of circumstances, because you'll be able to refer back to hard data and see roughly where you should be. That's that is the goal. That that is what we're aiming for um, with this document. Uh, I would say that it's going to come with my data on it to give you an idea of how you enter it. Like I said, I will run a little YouTube tutorial on this. Um, but fundamentally, um, anybody can enter their data, I think you need about four points to make it a meaningful graph. Um, and that will give you information about both the sprint events and the longer distance events. But if you've got a 2K, a 5K, a half hour, you're going to get a very good idea about those longer distance events. So Lewin has created, and I don't know if you have a name for it yet, but let's call it the Broken Oars Training Widget, which will help you to maximize your performance. It's available for a, a small fee, and it will have an impact upon the way that you row and how you row and your tests in general. And just, if I may, to summarize, so we started this podcast in the very first lockdown, basically because every time we talked to each other, we talked about rowing. Up until this point, it has been essentially like the NHS. It has been free to air. 
So you can basically, you can go on, you can go to the Apple store or you can go to Spotify or you can go to wherever you, li- um, wherever you listen to this podcast, Podbean, you can click on the play button and you, and, and you can listen to it. Um, and I think Lewin, you'd probably agree that it's been a massively, a massively productive and fun thing to do. And as much as we've got to talk about rowing a lot, we've got to meet a lot of our heroes and heroines and found out that the idea that meeting, you know, they say never meet your heroes, they'll always disappoint you. And we've actually met quite a few of ours and we've always come away from it going, wow, how great were they? They were great. Um, But, and even though we like to suggest that this is largely thrown together on the hoof and that we do no research whatsoever. uh, So just to give you an idea, for every hour of podcast that you listen to, it's probably taken a full working day of eight hours to produce it, whether that is contacting a guest, um, agreeing uh, an agenda or a series of talking points with a guest, researching a guest, finding a time where we can talk to them, getting online with them, getting the raw data, which might be anything from an hour to three hours long, editing that down to an hour and an hour and 20 minutes. And then the podcast hosting, um, which costs a certain amount each month. So there's a lot of work goes into each episode. And I know that in British rowing, we have an idea that it is all free, that it is it is a volunteer-led sport. As someone said it, the world's only not, um, non-billionaire sport, or what, or what was the phrase that was used? The phrase was, it is the world's only zero billion dollar industry. Yes. And I get that. Well, we've always listened to Broken Oars podcast and it's never cost us anything and we quite, we quite enjoy it. Lou and I have resisted putting this behind a Patreon wall because I think we, you know, it's pretty clear we genuinely like doing it. And, you know, we like talking to each other and we love talking to our guests and we like the fact that we have a podcast. It's great fun. We like that you've been buying us a coffee now and then. If you listen to a particular podcast and you like it and you want to make a donation, that would certainly help. But the idea of putting the training plans out there and the idea of putting the Broken Oars widget or the Dr. Lewin Hines widget out there is so that you can support the podcast and get something in return. Training programs are a little bit like opinions and bumholes. Everyone has one, but if you've listened to the podcast, you will know that Lewin actually knows what he's talking about. And if he's put together, well, a little bit, if he's put together a training plan for sprints and by, if you've never seen this man turn his lips blue during a 500 meter piece, you've never lived. Um, if you download these training plans, if you follow them, you will get faster. And the widget is one of those interactive things where if you are into the numbers and you are into the data, as, as Drewy likes to call it, if you're into the data, mate, it will actually allow you to predict and tailor your performances. That was our brief infomercial. Uh, we love doing this podcast. We'd like to continue it. We don't want to go behind Patreon and make it a pound a month subscription where you feel like you have to put a pound in or two pounds in or three pounds in every month just to hear us witter on and occasionally have an amazing guest on, as we always do. But it, it would just help us to keep it going, keep it viable so we can carry on with it. Would that be a fair way of summating it? That that is that is the plan, and we're we're very much trying to over the next few months produce podcasts that are less chatty, I suppose a little bit more research, provide more value to our dear listener um, in terms of things that they can take away 
from the podcast and apply to their own rowing career. Um, I suppose also just their own sporting career and their own understanding of sport and what's going on both in the sports of rowing and the sports that they watch in general. I think I think the podcast thing is a very interesting. It's a very interesting arena to be in because, okay, so let's put it this way: you and I come from academic backgrounds. We know enough to know that expertise, such as it is, is incredibly nuanced and incredibly qualified. So any given expert pronouncing on something will say, "Here is the premise. Here are the reasons for. Here are the reasons against. Here, here are the." Here are the counterfactuals. Here is the 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 weighing of evidence, and here are my conclusions. And my conclusions are: if if A, then B, but if C, then possibly D, but then if A changes, then B might change. And so, experts by their nature are nuanced and qualified. Podcasts tend to be very very. People, I think, tend to take them as read. So, if you if you look at a lot of the sports based podcasts that are around there, a lot of them offer advice about lifestyle, about mental health, about nutrition, about various things. And then you dig a little bit deeper and you realize that they're they're pushing perhaps a product that they own or invested in, or that they're pushing a product that they're sponsored by, or they're pushing a perspective that isn't scientifically and evidentially able to be proved. So I'd like to think of our podcast as a series of conversations and because we have that academic bias and that academic inflection, and also we're quite responsible individuals, despite you know the occasional protestations to the contrary, we're never going to say you should do X, Y, and Z, and your life will be perfect, and your stroke profile will be perfect, and your rowing will be perfect. We'd like to talk about things and go, well, this seems to work, and it seems to work to this point, but then you might want to try this, but then you might also want to consider that. So it's a conversation and the podcast is an ongoing conversation. Yeah. And hopefully what we're going to be bringing to you in return for like the generosity that people have already shown is a conversation that is more focused on information than just entertainment. I think that even when we're being conversational, we can't be quite informative. I'd like to think that some of our, irreverence and our willingness to poke sacred cows, even when sacred cows don't necessarily like it is not necessarily a bad thing, but I just think it, it it allows us to carry on exploring things that interest us. And what the podcast has shown is that if they interest you and I, they tend to interest other people, even if it interests them only to the point where they go, I really don't agree with that. The pause at the finish of the stroke is is a must. Everyone should pause at the finish of the stroke. Absolute nonsense. It's about a conversation and a dialogue because expertise as uh, such a, a, as it is, will always acknowledge that anything that is said from an expert's point of view is in dialogue with an ever-changing amount of evidence and information. So what's said on a Monday might have changed by a Wednesday. On that basis, shall we discuss the eternal debate between talent and skill? I don't think we should, because I think that that on the basis of what we've just said, we both know that I'm right and we should just leave it there. That's just going to throw that out there. No, I get, well, I mean, we did have, we did try and have this debate on Twitter, the famously the most brilliant 
uh, social media platform for having debate on uh, where people just come to nuanced and measured conclusions about the facts and never get into a massive argument and, you know, refuse to talk to people ever again, uh, yeah. which neither of us have ever done, have we? We've never bonfighted. No. We've never, ever, for example, had an argument with bikey Twitter about the fact that women should, of course, be paid as much as male athletes. My God, that was a pile on that, that I still wake up at three o'clock in the morning after lobster and rich cheese thinking about. That one got savage. Um, some of the DMs were quite savage as well. It's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of misogynists about there. None of them should be allowed to breed. And basically, if my daughter ever brings any of them home, then I've done something wrong. Um, yeah. Yes. So the talent thing. So I, I, I have a particular perspective, and it might be because I'm coming from a humanities perspective and, be, and because of my own psychological makeup, I've thought very, very deeply about what talent might be. And you come at it from a scientific perspective, which means that there might be an interesting an interesting arena for debate there. Well, I, I come at it, I, I think if you're going to talk to a chemist mm. or a physicist, um, as in a, a genuine, honest to God, an organic chemist or a physical chemist or an inorganic chemist, um, they, they could quite well have a different point of view to the one I do. But the thing is that I come at it from the point of view originally of being a biochemist and a molecular geneticist. And I spent many, many years discerning the effect that genes, and I will come out and say it, so we are talking about very specific mutations in very single and specific genes in the growth pathways of plants had on the downstream phenotype of those plants. So for instance, I could turn six foot tall tobacco plants by the addition of a single gene, not even from tobacco, um, but by the addition of a single gene, I could turn those six foot tall tobacco plants into six inch tall tobacco cabbages, which had no stem. They were just all leaves. Um, okay. We, we, we weren't actually using tobacco because we were paid by tobacco companies. It's just a useful uh, model organism. It, it's, 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 it's much less sus than it sounds. But, you know, I, I do have a background that fundamentally looks for the genomic influences on our abilities of individuals to be able to do one thing or another, whether they are individual human beings or individual plants. Okay, so let's take those ideas. If it's okay, Lewin, I'm going to outline kind of my humanities-based position and my humanities-based position or my personal position, it might not even be humanities, there might be humanities academics and researchers out there who are going, you, you're talking absolutely of bullcrap, which is fine. That's what peer-to-peer -peer review is for. But let me outline my position and then let's literally run it face first at 15 meters per stroke into your genetic position. Would that be okay? Um, to my genetically influenced position, shall we say. Okay, your genetically influenced position being you are a six foot nine albino with the wingspan of a male orangutan and the lungs of a grand national winner genetics. Six foot four, but yeah. That's only six foot four. Yeah, yeah. Only, only six foot four. 
I'm, um, I, must, I must be getting shorter because you always seem really, really tall to me. No, it, it's the long arms that do it. They, they just kind of like, they just like stretch around the place. They're, they're really handy for you tying your shoelaces without having to bend over, right? That's the basic idea, yeah. Okay. Just sort of like lean to one side. And there just you go. lean slightly to one side. To, okay. So so here's, here's what I've been thinking of. And the Twitter debate was with was with Andrew. So if you're listening, hello, Andrew, buy us a coffee. Um, here's what the debate got into. I think that it takes a deep breath because he realizes Lewin's going to have research and evidence that blows him out of the water. So I might as well use this this one moment where I'm not being blown out of the water to to frame my position. I think that what we call talent is essentially learning internalized. So. When we're born, we have an autonomic nervous system that means that we do certain things automatically. So we breathe, we defecate, we eat. Everything else that we do in life is a learned skill. So walking, talking, reading, writing, our social skills, playing an instrument, hitting an inside out forehand like Roger Federer, it's all learned. Now, what we call talent culturally, however, tends to be framed in terms of the divine, of being blessed, of it being innate or natural. They are naturally gifted. They have a talent for it. You hear a lot of sports pundits and commentators, even though they should know much, much better, still talking about natural gifts and natural talent. Now, to bolster the argument in in terms of the idea of the natural or the innate or the the divine, people tend to bring up the Tiger Woodses and the Roger Federers and the Mozarts in this equation. So, oh, Mozart, he wrote his first symphony when he was nine years old. Yes, he did. Have you actually listened to Mozart's first symphony? It sounds exactly like the sort of thing that a nine-year-old would write if that nine-year-old had been playing an instrument since he was two, as Mozart had, had been touring Europe as a child prodigy since that time, which Mozart had, um, had literally been singing for his supper for the last seven years, which he had, and also had a music teacher and a music master father in tow who knew about the idea of the canonical form and the genre requirements and all of those uh, time, the, those kind of things. So very before, much like the Arctic Monkeys, in other words. Very much like the Arctic Monkeys, who, yes. Who wrote all the lyrics on their first album and in no way, shape or form was a 45-year-old relative responsible for any of the things that the teenage lead singer might have written down well speaking as someone who speaking for as someone who lived in sheffield and lived opposite the school where the arctic monkeys went to school and and knows people who knocked around with them and would like to be able to go to south yorkshire again at, at some point albeit very very quickly and passing through on the way to somewhere far more interesting i couldn't possibly comment it's all innate south yorkshire genius loon how dare you say anything other than that um, no of course it is of course it is <laughs> perfect perfect genius um of course yes sorry we we were just yeah i wonder what happens when you go into <laughs> into Google and say, did the Arctic Monkeys actually write their own songs? <laughs> of course they did. I imagine that they're lawyers. Of course they did. Of course they did. So so I, I think of, of talent as learning internalized. I don't believe in the idea of talent as a divine manifestation. I think that's absolute crap. 
So to take a Mozart example, if you give birth to someone with all of Mozart's innate, in inverted commas, gifts, and you put them in a perspex box, obviously with holes in, because they need to be able to breathe, and with a little, like, a little, a little slidey thing you can pass food under, and then you leave them alone, occasionally pushing food under and making sure that they're still breathing, and you leave them, they're not and you don't expose them to any learning stimuli, any teaching or um, stimuli, any experiential stimuli, any cultural stimuli, any social stimuli, or any of the chances for learning, they're not going to cast off the perspect box like Clark Kent coming out of the telephone box and start manifesting divine music at a given point. So talent in, in that context is not, for me, an innate thing. It's something learned that's then given the chance for expression, which requires other factors to be at play, including cultural and socioeconomic ones. And if it doesn't have those stimuli and it doesn't have that chance, the heavens will not open and it will not divinely manifest. And I think, and, I, and I'm willing to get into the genetic debate, but I think that if talent is learning internalized, we can all be talented in as much as if someone else can do something then we can learn how to do it too and take it on and take it forward ourselves. I genuinely believe that we can all do what any other human being does. That doesn't mean that we we can't be, that we'll all be recognized for our talents because we tend to think of as, as talent as having a material or cultural worth. They're so talented tends to be attached to people who've done something that's made them materially or culturally successful, like a Paul McCartney or a, or a sporting figure or a, a whatever. But, but there are plenty of musicians who have as much inverted commas talent as Paul McCartney, but they didn't have the sociocultural factors around the Beatles that made them the Beatles factors that were outside of their control. Um, like, John a John Lennon might like meeting a George Harrison to provide the counterpoint to the Lennon and McCartney dynamic, like, like, like having a Ringo star, like being at the right place at the right point in time in youth culture, where all of a sudden teenagers for literally the first time in history, a had just been invented by the Americans as teenagers, B had money in their pockets, C weren't being forced to go and work in a factory at the age of 14 and, and wanted to get out and shake their tail feathers to the groovy beat sort of thing. So that that whole thing about, oh, they're so talented, they were always going to succeed, that's a narrative thing. That's called narrative ine inevitability. All narratives are presupposed on the knowledge of how the story ends. The Lord of the Rings starts, we already know that Frodo has destroyed the ring because it's the story of the history of the War of the Ring. All narratives start from the point of knowing how the story already ends. Um, but that complex is not talent. We might say that Steve Redgrave had a talent, in inverted commas, for moving the boat, but without those other things, opportunity, pathway, circumstance, and look, without his teacher going, oh, you've got big hands, let's get you in a boat and see what happens, without all of those things, he's just a big bloke from Marlowe who's probably still working in his dad's carpentry business. So we might not be recognized for our talent, we might not be rewarded for our talent, we might not reach the cultural heights of recognition that a Roger Federer or a Steve Redgrave or a Paul McCartney has, but I believe that we can all be talented. I'll get my coat. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, I'm worried that we are sort of slightly talking across purposes. Um, That's not like us, Lewin. 
We never do that for comic effect. In some ways, I think we have two different definitions of talent. At the same time, I personally do, you know, your fundamental thesis that any one human being can do what any one other human being has done, it may just take them a lot more work. I don't believe that. And essentially, the way I look at talent is talent is the thing that you are born with that allows you to do things that quite literally no one else can do. And in some cases, they are the things that you can do that were not taught to you and then are taught to other people. So, so that, that's the key thing. It, it's literally, it's the question of the four-minute mile. Mm-hmm. There, Roger, Roger Bannister, and to a certain extent, I'm going to talk about, you know, endurance physiology a little bit because I'm particularly interested in it. And it's also, and I will admit, it's a monofactorial issue. You're not looking at social cultural issues. You're not looking at... Uh, was there a running track down the road from Roger Bannister where he's growing up or going to university, which there absolutely was. You're not looking at the idea of whether or not um, Steve Redgrave was born in Marlow or born in Bedfordshire, where there are very, very few rowing clubs. In fact, there's one, and it's they're pretty good. But, you know, Broxbourne, got to love them. Um, good culture there, but they've only got like 1.1 kilometers of water to row on. So they're really good at doing cap turns. I mean, really good because they do them a lot. Um, so it's a. I live in the countryside. There's one thing. Has an, has an owl just flown into your. Or was that a shot? That, that was a shot. I'm pretty sure that was a shot. Um, okay. There are pheasants and there are grouse. And I think partridge in the local woods. It's about the um, right time of death for this to happen to them. Yeah. So they, okay. They're clearly not talented enough <laughs> to fly faster than shotgun pellets. Um, but anyway, sorry, that was a, that was a rather surprising, uh, surprising bang. I might actually shut the windows. Um, maybe. In case you get shot as a pheasant. It's unlikely, uh, to be fair. Yeah, uh, that's, there's some terrible shots around here. Um, but... There is there is this idea that you can do anything that someone else has done. The people who do things first do tend to be different and measurably different to others. So the first time, you know, uh, there were a lot of people around the sort of like 404, 402, 405 mark for the mile. Um, when Roger Bannister was chasing it out and he did it on a time trial and he did it with pacemakers um, and then he broke it and then suddenly around the world, different people just realised, I've just got to do it and they went for it. But fundamentally, the people who do things first tend to be measurably different and from my point of view, looking at aerobic capacity, 
your ability to breathe in oxygen, turn that oxygen in combination with glucose into carbon dioxide and water, and in the process generate large amounts of adenosine triphosphate for your muscles to turn into kinetic energy, quite literally torsion around your joints uh, to propel you forward, or in the case of rowing, to propel you backwards, that can be as little as, you know, and genetics is a very complicated business these days with millions, no, millions is wrong, but tens of thousands of genetic markers in the genome pointing to a variation of 10% one way or another, but a very large amount of our ability to do this fundamental physical process of aerobic metabolism can be defined by as little as 29 of these genetic markers. And then essentially, if all these 29 genetic dials are turned up to 11, um, you are someone who then has the ability to choose the sport that most suits other aspects of your physiognomy. So for instance, if you're short and light, you can go cycling or running. If you're short and heavy, you've got track cycling or rugby. Tall and heavy, you can become a rower. Tall and light, you become a swimmer. And the opportunity within that fundamental underlying genetic makeup are so vast, they take you to a higher peak that you can then choose your direction. It's not necessarily about which avenues are open to you. It's about the fact that so many more avenues are open to you than, let's say, you and I, mere mortals, who are essentially quite physically fit. And we were lucky enough to, you know, we, you know, our mothers chose wisely and we picked up a few sports through our childhood and we made the best of what we got. And we were basically, we were the 51 percenters in the words of Mark Lewis. We, we were the people we were the people who would get eaten in the second half by the zombie hordes. We'd be able to run away faster than other people. Um, now, this is, that's wonderful. But if you kind of look at, let's say, cyclists, and cycling has this very, very strange thing that so much of the biomechanics are essentially taken out of the equation and you're an engine on top of a machine and all your springy tendons don't really matter. And it's just how much you weigh, how much oxygen can you turn into energy? Um, and the way it was once described to me is that a very keen amateur cyclist who had been training hard for years, was careful with their diet, um, could have a VO2 max of 45 milliliters of oxygen turned into carbon dioxide per kilogram of body weight every minute. At their, at their maximum, working, going up that hill. And they would be considered to be a very fit individual indeed. And they'd probably be one of the best riders in their, in, in, in their riding club. Whereas a Tour de France winner, even, even sort of like a top 10 guy in the Tour de France, professional cyclist, without any additional aid, 
habits. Without a training program, the first time you sat them on an exercise bike, they would have a VO2 max in the region of 55 milliliters per kilogram per minute. They would be better stepping onto a bike the first time than somebody who'd been training for years. And it, it's horrible because, you know, we both come from a sport where we work on the idea that hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Mm. But quite literally, there are ca cases where talent, the inbuilt gifts that essentially your mother gave you to extend the rock and roll me metaphor further, will take you further than the hard work of others. And for me, that is the thing that is talent. And if, if I'm going to look at, you know, the Carl Lewis story is, is the one that really springs to mind. Carl Lewis wasn't an enthusiastic child sprinter. His dad was track coach. His dad had taken him down to the track. And do you know what he did? He played in sand. Well, people weren't long jumping in it. And he did that for years until one day when he was 11, he's just like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll try. And they lined him up for a 60 meter race. And he thrashed by all counts in that 60 meter race. Kids who've been training there for years, kids who are three, four years older than him. He just like left them for dust. Why? Because within his muscles, there was a absolute surfeit of fast twitch muscle fibers, which can generate over short periods of time, over short distances, more force than anybody else. And if you kind of like examine the men's 100 meter final, men's 200 meter final, 400 meter final, anything up to about 800 meters, you will find people with this very, very specific characteristic the training can influence, but fundamentally the influence of training is vastly less than the influence of how these individuals were born. Now, if you take, for instance, me and Graham Benton. So um, for those of you who don't follow the in indoor rowing thing, Graham Benton is undoubtedly Britain's greatest ever indoor rower. Um, he was, um, the joint holder of the British indoor rowing 2000 meter record, uh, which I th think he set back in, um, 2006, if I'm not mistaken. And he held that it was exactly the same time to the nearest tenth of a second as Matthew Pinsent. And unlike Matthew Pinsent, he wasn't a full-time rower. He was a full-time computer salesman with a very extensive indoor rowing hobby. Now, um, I think Graham Benton started the sport a couple of years before I did. Um, and his first ever, no, second ever 2K was six minutes and 16, which is exceptional. Everybody knows a six minutes, 16, 2K is an absolutely outstanding score. My second ever 2K was six minutes and 28. Also, actually, a very, very good score. And both 
these scores would have marked this out to someone in rowing as a potential talent to watch and someone who was, if we'll excuse the phrase, naturally gifted at the sport. Um, Graham Benton had a significant advantage over me. But then, over the next few years, I peaked at a lifetime best of six minutes and nine seconds, which was a 19-second improvement. Um, Benton, Graham Benton, peaked at five minutes and 42, which is just outstanding. And very, very few people have ever even come close to that. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Graham Benton, whilst he worked very, very hard in that period of time, he went from an average of 421 watts to an average of 560 watts. I only went from an average of 383 watts to 443 watts. He improved more than twice as much as I did. And whilst we both did a lot of work, and he may have done some more work, and he may have been more scientific than that, he didn't have some esoteric knowledge. He wasn't necessarily doing vastly more work than I did. Apparently, his training never moved that much beyond 70 to 80 kilometers a week. Now, I don't know this for certain, but it was very much like our training at Agecroft. And... It was very much like my training at Maidstone. The difference was a vast increase in his improvement. He, impro he improved by 25%, whereas I improved by 16%. So it was not just a question of where we ended up. It was also a question of how much we improved, how much we responded to the training that we underwent. And... Whilst this is very much, you know, indoor rowing in many ways is the ultimate straight line time trial sport. It's just a question of literally it's a measure of how much work you can do over a fixed time, essentially. It's just how hard people that handle. There are more complicated sports. You know, rowing is a much more complicated sport because it comes with the skill aspect. Cycling comes with the weight aspect and the streamlining aspects. Running, you have to deal with huge numbers of other people on the track, etc. These are these are slightly more muddied picture, but fundamentally there is still this underlying starting point that the great athletes will have, which is why no matter how hard no matter the work we do, we can't necessarily catch up with these people. And these things kind of spread their fingers out into all aspects in what is called the nature of nurture. So there is a question. You, you think that there's Roger Federer can, can play and hit with a precision and a grace and just like an absolute fluidity that you or I cannot match. But then we've never spent an entire, you know, nine months training in Dubai for three or four hours a day 
thinking about, right, if the ball comes into me this way, I'm not going to hit it back cross court. I'm going to hit it outside of the line towards the corner of the court as far away as I can from the opposition hitter. Now, that's taken, that takes three or four hours of practice a day for years and years and years. But the thing is, to do that, Roger Federer actually needed to get to a point where he had a rotor of hitting partners that he was working with because one person couldn't stand out in the sun in Dubai for as long as he could, tolerating the heat, tolerating the light, and tolerating the workload in the same way that he could. So there was something intrinsic within Roger Federer that has allowed him to do that practice. And that is what I mean by talent. I don't mean that he has the skill that he's developed, I recognize as something that is developable, developable that is not intrinsic. That grace, that fluidity, that precision, that has come from practice. But the ability to practice, the ability to gain from that practice, I believe is innate and shared by very, very few people. And that is what I think of as talent when I say that is a talented athlete. And I would agree absolutely. Most pundits can't actually sit there and really say, that guy can do these things, but he's actually lazy as sin. He's just like, you know, he just jogs around a few times and then just, oh my word, that was the most incredible shot ever. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's the difference between Jim Courier and Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi used to practice for four hours a day. Jim Courier used to practice for like 45 minutes a day. Um, and they were both world number one for a while. Um, and that, I think, is the difference in talent. That's what I mean by talent. The people who can do what other people do just with much less work. And when they do the work, what they can do, no one else can do. Okay. I would agree with all of that. And I think we are not arguing at cross purposes, but we are arguing, we are arguing about cultural recognition of talent, but we're also making the argument that when the culture, when cultural recognition of talent happens at the very, very highest level, like the Roger Federer's or the Matthew Pinson's or the Graham Benton's or the Andre Agassi's, you are also making the point, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about and I might have the wrong language for this loon, but I'm not a scientist. People who have super physiological and super psychological capacities for development within a given area, if their opportunity and pathway leads them into engaging with that area. So if, if Roger Federer had never discovered tennis and by all accounts, he was a pretty keen junior football player, his parents didn't do the, Tiger Woods, Andre Agassi parental thing of you're going to be a tennis player. So I'm literally going to gaffer tape a tennis racket to your hand in the cot, which is what happened to Andre Agassi with his father, which that's is weird. borderline. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's child abuse. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's, let's call a spade a spade. That's like, yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's genuinely very, very strange. And you should, ladies and gentlemen, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. He, he gaffer taped 
a, a mini tennis racket to his baby's hand and then hung a mobile made of tennis balls up above his cot and took his hand and encouraged him to hit him hit them in the cot it's i mean uh, andre's memoir is a absolute peon to the um levels of self-absorption that an elite athlete can go to in it all being about him or her but it is actually a, it's actually a really engrossing read about the the psychological effects of a childhood like that but you're talking so let's say Roger Federer doesn't find tennis he is basically an accountant in Basel with slightly better than average hand-eye coordination if someone knocks a coffee cup off the table when they're talking about the yearly tax return because you've still got to have the you've got to have the pathway and the opportunity to develop the super physiological and psychological capacities because you're not suddenly going to do nothing to the age of 18 and then win Wimbledon it's not going to happen and you've got to have the context in which your super physiological and psychological abilities can manifest you've got to have an, an, an arena like tennis or an arena like rowing or an arena like music or a, a, an arena like like art for um, it to happen and they're fairly arbitrary arenas as mark said when he talked to us you know you take all everybody in the nba now and you don't invent the sport of basketball and you have a lot of very very tall people who aren't who are basically useless they're not heroes and endorsement deals and people that we look up to as role models anymore they're just very very tall people that's it because there's no basketball for them to express the the super physiological abilities that they have um well i mean within the 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 sociology of sport this is one of the things that is looked at extensively which is this idea that the almost endless capacity of young human males to invent new games with which to display their physiological capacity because there is such a value to being able to defeat other young human males in a simulated physical contest hmm. that, that isn't destructive and dangerous such as tennis which is basically a sword fight by proxy yeah um which is quite possibly one of the reasons why we it's so popular and we love it so much um but fundamentally that in nearly every society there exist these pathways by which people can branch out and what you tend to see as with or as becca Roger Federer, the people who excel in one domain tended to have been like really quite good in others. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of the, if you, if you talk to golfers who struggle around at 19 handicap on their whole, their whole life and that's it. And then somebody comes in from motor racing or rowing or football and suddenly before you know it they're playing on four handicap because they those people who excelled in another sporting field tend to have within them certain abilities that are enormously 
translatable. And it's not a question of what they can do. Usually there are issues of kind of like reaction time, proprioception of where your hands are and like the number of nerve endings in your forearms and things like this. A lot of it is about the ability to improve with practice. Mm. And whether you can, you know, both the extent to which you can improve with practice and the rate at which you can improve with practice, nobody has been able to find ways of adjusting those outside of who this person is. And arguably, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the things that I kind of turn around and say, there's no such thing as a great coach. There are people who've worked with great athletes. Um, my apologies to coaches listening. Sorry, but not sorry. Well, um, I, I tend to agree with you the more coaching that I do, but yes, fundamentally. Um, one of the principal jobs of any coach who wants to become a great coach is essentially and I say this without making it more of a accusation of perfidity than it should be, is the grooming or is the location and grooming of great athletes into your stable of athletes. It mm. is opening up a big beacon of awareness of this place welcomes highly intense, strong people who want to defeat other people and aren't that bothered about whether they're liked that much by those other people afterwards. You know, and you can see that. That happens at Agecroft. Agecroft was this mechanism for hoovering in highly intense, big, strong men and women from the Manchester area and saying, here's a rowing machine, here's a boat, here are some weights, get used to it because this is your future now. Okay. What, that, that, that recipe of rowing machine, boat, weight, that doesn't change. That's everywhere. That was a Trafford. That was a Hollingworth Lake. That was a oof, pick somewhere. That, that was at Liverpool Victoria Docks. Yeah, it was. It was, a, it was at Grosvenor. It was at Grosvenor. It was at Royal Chester. In Saturday on Henley. The difference is the people that were brought in and the environment. The environment has to be there. You have to create that environment for a given sport. But each one of those people. They'd have gone to a rugby field and they'd have been recognised as like, yeah, yeah, he's the guy you want to have. You know, you remember Craig. Yeah. I mean, I bet Craig would have would have been an absolute blinder in a rugby league team. Oh, good God. Yeah, yeah the, Man the Manchester Police rugby league team. They'd have loved him. They probably cried when they found out he'd gone to rowing. Probably. But isn't that also the argument of you need a place for the talent to manifest? You need a Dennis, you need a culture, you need 
a pathway to <clears throat> to achievement, to medals, to excelling in your given field. That's I will. so you can have the talent, you can have the the supra physiological. And now that I've learned the word supra physiological, by God, I'm using it in every podcast, whether it fits the context or not. And and let, ladies and gentlemen, it, it will be very very useful when we talk about. Um, various performance enhancing substances that we're going to be talking about to some extensive level in the next few podcasts. Indeed. And we're not talking about the coffee and croissants that we, that we ran on at Agecroft. We're talking about the proper hard stuff. Like well, we were talking about coffee and croissant because genuinely caffeine and carbohydrate are honest to God performance enhancing substances. In it which works. case, let's get to Let's get to Starbucks and order order some coffees and croissants then. Um, Although maybe not Starbucks because their coffee isn't. isn't but anyway, best, enough but. about that. But yes, there is. But my argument is those pathways always exist. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you're going to find. Um, so Derek Radisha is undoubtedly the greatest rower who ever came out of Africa. Right. He's never set foot in a rowing boat, of course. He mm. was just simply the greatest 800-meter runner anyone could ever watch. And I'm really sorry, Seb. I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, Steve. Um, you know, um, yeah, I'm, uh, except I'm not sorry. He was better than you. He ran the way human beings are meant to run for mm. about 101.1 seconds he just looked like a human lightning. And emotional, literal. Every time to watch him on that field. And it was just the fear that I felt every time he stepped onto the track. And you just thought, could anyone possibly be better than him? And it did happen. Eventually it did happen. But for a while, you just looked at him and he was incredible. He was a man who was, I think, six foot three inches tall. He had long arms and long legs and a frankly terrifying aerobic and anaerobic capacity and the ability, I'm fairly sure, to eat more pain than any human being can possibly imagine apart from a very select few. And he would have made an absolutely phenomenal roller. Fortunately for him, somebody spotted him and put him on a track. But that's the thing. In nearly every society, these, these outlets exist. They're everywhere. I mean, literally down to hunter-gatherer societies have sports. And they have multiple sports. They have fighting sports. They have running sports. They have ball sports. All of these things exist. There, there is genuinely nothing new under the sun. If you go to the Amazon rainforest, you know, the, the young men of the tribe will be competing on who can blow dart the most monkeys. And they all have these competitions, these sports, where essentially there are very fixed rules which provide a degree of safety so nobody has to die or get too badly injured. And they do these things and those outlets 
always there. Now you may not get you may not get from the Amazon rainforest as the best monkey blow data, and I'm not being flippant, bigoted, or like you know they use blow darts, they use them to catch monkeys, and if you're better at catching monkeys than the next guy, you're in line for a hell of a lot of status and appreciation. Um, and so all those kind of things are there. And yes, David Radisha, probably the best rower that's ever come out of Africa or quite possibly anywhere else in the world, never won a Henley medal. He never even set foot on a rowing machine. But my God, there was a pathway there. And that pathway was running. And there, there is this constant discussion about the, the potential for the next Kenyan Tour de France winner. Or not the next, but the first Kenyan, just like the wave of East Africans that would dominate Tour de France and um, multi stage cycling going forward. And it hasn't happened yet. And, but one of the reasons it hasn't happened is because there are so many other outlets for all these phenomenally talented athletes that exist across the world that they don't need to go and become, as somebody said, a dog in a hat in Belgium riding through pig shit. They can stay in Kenya and become one of the greatest runners in history. Or they can actually do Kenya's national sport, which is football. Mm. They're just not very good at football because they're really, really good at distance running. And apparently the two things are like completely um, incompatible. Uh, Mark Lewis Francis said this about playing football with Mo Farah. He, he loved football. Mo Farah absolutely loved football. But what he said, he's got this massively, massively long stride pattern. And you can't be a great footballer with a long stride button. You have to have a pit little pitter patter feet because you, you because like in between that running, somebody just comes along while you're like two foot in the air and just like swipes the ball away from you. Yeah. Is is there not also there are no amazing Kenyan Tour de France winners because not a lot of them can afford ten thousand pound bikes? Um, and there's and there's the rowing argument of, you know, uh, obviously we both have quite strong um views about Matthew Said and his and his filleting of the of the Matthew Gladwell book to make his own career. Um but it's that thing of the greatest rower that you you never met was David Rashida, which is which is he was unbelievable uh, on an 800 meters. But if you never get in a boat uh, or you never get on a ten thousand pound Tour de France bike, or and also with all due respect, looking at the way that the world marathon record is tumbling and looking at the previous list of Kenyan middle and um, long distance runners who then popped for, for EPO and various other drugs. There's not a massive testing regimen going on at, you know, at, at the kind of the, the below the national international level. And when these people are kind of coming up, I'm not suggesting that David is, has been using any performance enhancing substances whatsoever, but it's still I mean, this well fact that, that nobody ever took drugs before like 2013. No one's ever taken any drugs at all. And Atlanta was especially, not the dirtiest games in history. Whatsoever. Not from Britain. No, um, from my point of view, 
Um, every human society has these sporting outlets and the people who rise to the top of these sporting outlets, you will probably find they fit into a relatively small number of genetic boxes. Okay. And and actually, I don't actually believe those genetic boxes are endlessly advantageous. I think they probably are in today's world of plentiful food. And in, in, in a world where more people have their health threatened by obesity than by starvation, the ability to run and run and run or cycle and cycle and cycle is an immensely valuable ability just because you can kind of utilize all that food to uh, an extent that improves your health. But having in, in the good old days of malnutrition and starvation being a constant vector towards the grave, having a 70 milliliter per kilogram per minute VO2 max or higher probably really meant you were just sitting there and burning a lot more calories than the next guy. Um, so in that, I would say, yes, it mattered. You know, before the Green Revolution, before 1960, where you were born probably mattered a lot more. These days, I think it matters a lot less. And I also do think that there will always be value ascribed in every human society to what we would describe in every human in every human society as physical fitness. I, I, I think every culture has a word for, you know, the ability of a person to run up a hill carrying a bit of weight faster than the next person. So you're talking about talent as physical manifestation of um, genetic predispositions. Coming back to my point that a lot of it, what we culturally ascribe as talent is crossed over from an artistic or a, or a humanitarian view of it as being somehow artistic or cultural or having social worth, a, a Mozart, a WB Yeats, a, a, um, you know, that kind of thing. In terms of there being, um, you, I think you said 29 genetic um, variances that might mean that you have a physical propensity for X, Y, and Z. Does that mean that when we look at people who pick up a violin at the age of four, and I'm not talking about Asian tiger parents who force their children no, to learn just, the violin. just that. How, how did that child know to make that chord? Yes. So coming to the idea of art, if not genetics, are we talking about a neurodiverse profile, like someone who is, for example, Eddie Van Halen is famous for having invented tapping, inventing inventing tapped harmonics, being part of Van Halen, possibly the finest American rock band of their generation, etc., 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 and one of the greatest electric guitarists of all time. Except Eddie Van Halen didn't actually invent finger, finger tapping, which is where you you fret you fret two notes and then you tap a third with your with what should be your picking hand on the fretboard. Um, Steve Hackett did, and he didn't invent tapped harmonics, the um, jazz 
musician Lenny Bro did. And without David Lee Roth being a blonde-haired Viking rock god flouncing around the front of the stage singing about there are no mean streets like these and might as well jump, Eddie Van Halen is basically a Dutch immigrant guy playing jazz fusion in a bar somewhere in East Pasadena right now, although possibly not because he died of throat cancer brought on by years of drinking and drugging. Um, but are we talking about some kind of neurodiverse attraction to certain things like being able to take music further than perhaps the next five-year-old child in the class? I mean, Eddie talked about the way if you, if you read back through some of his, interviews and it's pretty clear that he was synesthetic which in which he 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 perceived sound and felt sound as another emotional outlet and as much as he didn't hear sound to sound but he he heard it as color or he heard it as an emotional response to sound um and he talked about never practicing but then in the same breath he'd say but i'd sit and play for eight to twelve hours a day that's practice by another word he yeah. talked about not knowing any music theory but his parents were both professional musicians and by the time he was 15 he'd won the california wide classical piano competition three times now to put that in context you can fit britain into california about four times so that's him winning against every other pianist in california at the age of 13 against seasoned professionals the classical repertoire of Ravel and Stravinsky and Chopin and Liszt and all of the piano standards. So if you, if you've identified this in a physical context, there are Matthew Pinson never worried about getting his, his two K score below seven minutes. Essentially, he probably did about six, six or five to six, 10, the first time that he sat on a rowing machine at Eaton and eventually whittled it down to sub 645. Are there, are there, neurodiverse or psychological factors that can influence um, the abilities that a child might have or the engagement that a child might have or the this this blossoming of what of of what we're calling inverted commas talent someone who can paint better than anyone else or draw better without apparently seeming to practice or can play an instrument better despite receiving the same tuition or having the same access to instruments or who can put words together in in a in a particular way that's more imaginative or has an imaginative an imaginative ability to create a narrative or um, write a story about what I did on my holidays or whatever I think that the greatest gift that you could ever give me, because I'm fairly sure that you have a very similar, possibly not quite as extensive oral perception as, let's say, someone like Eddie Van Halen. I think the greatest gift you could ever give me would not necessarily be hearing through your ears but replicating what lights up in your brain when you hear music. Because I love music. I absolutely love music. And, you know, if, and I'll talk to people who are, you know, genuine, like, music bods to dancers to people who've studied music and say, wow, it's really nice that you actually, you know, you like music and, and you understand it a bit. And it's like, yeah, I've read a few 
magazines. I read a few interviews with Dave Grohl and I learned, you know, so, oh, that's what a middle eight is. Okay, right. I'll go and, you know, yeah. Um, I'm presuming it's eight bars of music in the middle of a song. Somewhere in the middle of a song. Yeah. 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 Much what, yeah. <laughs> verse, what was it? Just said verse, chorus, no, intro, verse, chorus, verse, middle eight finale. And yeah. but apparently you can just like look at the first like 30 Foo Fighters songs that were released. And that was it. And that that's his entire song I do think that if you if I could understand what music does to your brain for just half an hour, I would see the world differently. And uh, it would be you know, and you could take that further. If, if you could just sit inside those neural pathways, if you could, like, not even treat Dave Grohl as a puppet, but let Dave Grohl be a puppet inside of you so you could feel how he moves his hands and feel how he's thinking about not just why he's hitting the drum here, but why that hand, he's hitting it like that, not like that and what's going to happen both in the next 10 seconds in the next 20 seconds in the next two minutes and the layers and layers of complexity he's building through his left hand his right hand his left foot his right foot and the combination of those two that would be like one of the greatest leveling experiences humanity could ever have just if like people could have that moment inside these genuinely great artists' heads. If you could look out, again, not through Rembrandt's eyes, but through his visual cortex for just half an hour, you would see the world in a profoundly deeper and richer way than you ever had before. And I think a lot of people, you know, it would be this fantastic and incredible gift if people could have for a day or for a week or a month Matthew Pinson's physiology but enough about it <laughs> um, it, it, it's not good for you people I mean it's uh, we'll be getting someone on the show who tell you it's led to more deaths than any other in fact all other um, performance enhancing substances combined allegedly um, so yeah, it, it's an incredible, incredible way of looking at it. There are people who can perceive and interact with the, work, with the world in ways that I just don't think most of us can. And I think we should look in wonder on these abilities, if not these people, because we can. We all, I do think, share some small part of them and they exist as this kind of firmament for us to all aspire to. Yeah. I mean, I think when we came into the talent thing that we, I thought that we were going to kind of nail it a little bit like nailing fog to the wall. I would, I would put my, this is what we think of as it in cultural terms. And you'd come in with the, well, there are genetic predispositions, but actually we've reached a point, which is the point where we're about to leave it. Well, I, I think we've just kind of scratched the surface of what talent might be, but I think it's a good place to leave it because 
I feel we can we can leave the idea of talent as being something we see another human being do. And because of our engagement in a similar craft or discipline or practice, we might be able to get a sense of what they're doing. But because there's so many levels above us, we can get a sense of what we're doing, but it actually increases our sense of wonder about the capacity of humanity to excel in different areas and fields because we can intuit what they're doing and we can we can have a sense of what Matthew Pinson did in the book because we because we rode. But really, if we actually were in his body for a day, or if we were in Eddie Van Halen's body for a day, you know, recording recording the 1984 album or or playing the guitar the way that he played the guitar or we were in we were in Mozart's mind as he was composing his requiem or we were in Van Gogh's we were feeling what he felt you know put in terms of proprioception and synesthetically the way that he reacted to color and he saw color and that's why why he loaded color on the brush and on the canvas in in that way talent is human potential and what we recognize when we recognize talent is we are recognizing human potential we might not be able to reach the same levels either in a sporting context or a cultural context but we can we can share in it and we can enjoy it and we can we can feel like we are we are touching the universal and the divine when we appreciate that does that make sense or is that a bit hippie no i i I think i think within within what we think of as talent, whether it is born of hard work, whether it is born of sheer natural ability or what is usually, as you said, eight to 12 hours of just playing guitar. That's not practice. That's just playing guitar. No, that's practice. Yeah. Um, eight to 12 hours, that mixture of the two that you usually find, that ability to practice, there is the spark of the divine. Mm. That that is what we look at, and we think of as these people are demigods. And the more that we try and be like them, I think the more that we can appreciate that genuine spark of incredulity. Yeah, while also enjoying our own practice ourselves. I think so. Okay. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the inaugural lecture on talent from the Broken Oars University. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. We'll speak to you next time. Buy us a coffee.